I pray that as I preach today on worship, that it will just build on what we've already experienced here today. If you've got your Bible, find your place with me in John chapter 12, a passage which really does get to the heart of worship. The title of my message today is, Your Place at God's Table. I can remember years ago as a student sitting in English class, uh, reading a short story by the author O. Henry. It was the story entitled, The Gift of the Magi. In the story, we have a young married couple named Della and Jim. They were poor, but they loved each other deeply. Each one had a unique possession. Della's hair was her pride and glory. It flowed like a golden robe down her back. Jim owned a gold watch which his father had given him, and it was like a family heirloom of great sentimental value. So on the day before Christmas, Della counted her money. She had a dollar and 87 cents with which to buy a present for her beloved. She wanted to get him something that he would really like, and she knew she couldn't do much with a dollar 87. So the only thing that she could do was to go down to the barber and have her hair cut to make a wig with which she was paid $20. With that money, she went to the jewelry store and she bought a chain for Jim's precious watch. Well, Jim came home later that evening from work. He saw that his bride had completely lost her hair. and He was left speechless as he handed her his precious Christmas gift. His was a set of expensive tortoise shell combs with jeweled edges for her lovely hair. And in order to buy that gift, he sold his precious gold watch. And so the moral of O. Henry's story was that true love is expressed when each gives all they have to devotion toward the one they love. And I think that's the kind of sacrifice and deathless devotion that is the heartbeat of what it means to worship the Lord. And in John chapter 12, we have, by my estimation, one of the most incredible expressions of love toward Christ that even today, some 2,000 years later, we are still learning rich lessons. Now, John 12, just as a side note, is a critical turning point in the gospel because it marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life known as the Passion Week, which all, of course culminates in his crucifixion and his resurrection. So John chapter 12 all the way through John 19 narrates Jesus' inevitable march toward Calvary. The setting that we find ourselves in in John chapter 12 is a familiar place. We're back in Bethany, which is where we were in John 11, where we witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus is surrounded by beloved friends. You have Mary, you have Martha, you have Lazarus. You can imagine that mouth of the graveside is still gaping open because just a few days earlier, Lazarus had been brought back miraculously from that tomb and so as a way of celebrating Jesus' most astounding miracle, the beloved friends get together and they say, let's have a party. And it's all about celebrating the new life that Lazarus has been given and what Jesus did for their family. Now, 
If you read the same narration over in the Gospel of Mark, if you go to Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, that passage tells us that they actually had the meal in a home owned by Simon the leper, a man whom Jesus had also healed earlier. Jesus is the honored guest at this banquet. And I mentioned he's surrounded by these characters, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, and of course we're going to see Judas. So picture these faces around the room as Jesus and his disciples are feasting. Each one occupies a different spot at the table. In fact, I'm going to go one step further and say that each one that we're going to meet in John chapter 12 is a picture of different members within the church today. You're going to see yourself sitting at the Lord's table here in one way or another. You probably are going to relate to one of these four characters and the unique relationship that they had with the Lord Jesus. So ask yourself today as we study this passage, what is my place at the Lord's table? Let's look at the first character. Number one, let's talk about Lazarus, the death-defying witness. He's the death-defying witness. We read here, starting in verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, do you know that the Bible doesn't record one word that Lazarus speaks? And yet there he sits at Simon's dinner table. He's trading stories, I imagine, as he's buttering a biscuit. Even though they probably didn't have biscuits back then. But I like biscuits. Amen? Now, what's interesting here is you have two candidates or two recipients of resurrection power. You have Simon and Lazarus who had both been brought back from the dead by the power of Jesus. Let me remind you, Simon was a leper the Bible says, and he had a death sentence hanging over his head, and had Jesus not healed his spots, he inevitably would have died with that terrible skin disease. And of course, Lazarus had been dead long enough in the grave that the Bible said in John 11 that his body had already begun to stink and decay. And yet, here they are both seated now at the table with Jesus as the guests of honor, and they are both walking miracles of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The Lord had given them both a second chance at life. Now, if you read here a little bit further in the passage, drop down to verse 9, it tells us some interesting detail of what is going on in the culture, the background. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Boy, I bet you they did. Word traveled fast. A guy who'd been dead in the ground for four days is now sitting at the table eating again, and Jesus is the cause of all of it. I can guarantee you that caused a stir in the little town of Bethany and brought people out of the woodwork from all side of the country to come and see this oddity. To come and gaze upon the work of God. Verse 10 says that, So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. And I mentioned last week, what are you going to scare Lazarus with at this point? He's already died and come back, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, is death all you got? 
I know the one who brought me back and he'll be there to lead me on the other side. So you couldn't scare a man like Lazarus with the threat of persecution or death. Verse 11 says, Because on account of many of the Jews who were going away believing in Jesus. So the Pharisees were upset. Their feathers had been ruffled because uh, obviously Jesus preaching with power and authority, doing these miracles, and they are losing their following left and right because of the power of the Lord. They were leaving the dead, cold works of religion and encountering the living Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And friends, some of you have experienced that in your brief time here at Liberty Baptist Church. Uh, you, you got here and you felt the touch of the Spirit. You were renewed by the worship and God brought you out of a dark season, out of a cold, dead form of religion into life and revival and power and joy. Amen? Yeah. And as I see these two men seated beside Jesus, they're a reminder of who Jesus said He was, the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus is a picture of the new life that he had in Christ, and he's the best witness of the reality of Christ. You see, friend, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live again. And what a great challenge to us as we read here. Does our new life speak so undeniably of Christ's resurrection power that people are drawn to Him by our witness? They came from far and wide just to see Lazarus again because God had given him, Christ had breathed into him the spirit of life again. I pray that when people look upon Derek McCarson or they look on Stacy Robinson or Cliff Tipton or they, uh, they, they look upon your life that they have only one explanation for how you live and why you're blessed and the joy that you live with and the peace that you have in your heart and it's because Christ has given you a new heart and a new life to live for Him. When people look at my life I want the only explanation to be, well, it must have been Jesus. That's the witness of Lazarus and Simon the leper. The only reason they were there was because of Him. How many of you can raise your hand in praise today and say that? The only reason I'm alive today, only reason I'm here lifting my hands in praise, only reason I've got something good to say is because of the grace and the goodness of my God who brought me out of a deep, miry clay, who reached way down and pulled me out of death and brought me to life. And by the way, friend, this was a party. Right? We forget about that when we come to church sometimes. I'm not saying we get out of hand and we're swinging from the chandeliers and we're throwing hymn books. I'm not talking about being out of control. I'm talking about being filled with the power and the joy of the Lord. We forget about that sometimes as we go through the routine of going to church. It's just something to check off the list. Vance Havner used to joke. He said, church starts at 11 o'clock sharp and ends at 12 o'clock dull. That's the testimony of a lot of churches that I've visited before. But friend, I can say, I don't believe that that's what is said about us today. Amen. This is a celebration. Church ought to be fun. Church ought to be a celebration of those who've been brought from death into life. 
Uh, don't tell me you ought to be more dignified and more under control, preacher. Uh, you ought to uh, be prim and proper. I don't think so. Not when you know my Lord. Not when you read what He's done. Not when you see how far He's brought me in my life. I can't be silent. I can't just sit still. I, I, I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with praise. Hey, and church ought to be the highlight of your week and my week. Because that was me. I was Lazarus. I was dead. I was hopeless. I was helpless. I was hell bound until Jesus came and spoke the word into my life. Church ought to be lively. It ought to be joyful. It ought to be supernatural. Who told us that church had to be boring? Who told us that church had to be cold and dead? Sometimes there's more enthusiasm in a morgue than there is in a Baptist church. This was a party. And if you've been raised from death into life, you just try and contain the joy of the Lord in your life. Amen? Love the story that's told about old Harry Ironside. He was a prolific preacher at a Moody Bible Church in Chicago. And early on in his ministry, as he began to make headway, and folks began to flock to that church... Under his ministry, he was approached by a skeptic. This was a fellow that didn't like him. His name was Arthur Lewis. He said, Preacher, he said, I want to challenge you to a debate. You present Christianity. I'm an agnostic. I'm going to present the agnostic worldview. And by the way, agnosticism means I don't know. In the Latin, that's ignoramus. Uh, not a good title to take. But anyway... Ironside agreed to the debate with this man, Arthur Lewis. He said, here's the following condition of the debate. They set a date. They found the venue. Ironside said, at some point in your debate, here's what you have to do. You have to present one person who has positively benefited from the atheist or from the agnostic worldview. Just one. Well, the day of the debate came around, the skeptic, Arthur Lewis, he got up there, he waxed eloquent, he gave his case, why he believed that skepticism, agnosticism, atheism was uh, true. And then Dr. Ironside got up and he had his opportunity. He didn't have to say much, for he had two or three pews full of followers who had come with him. One of them was a prostitute, former prostitute. One of them was a former drunkard. One of them was a former junkie. One of them was a deadbeat dad. One of them was... After another was just a lost person who'd come to know Jesus Christ. And they got up and they shared their testimony. And they shared what Jesus had done for them. And he said, I think that pretty much is an open and shut case. But Christianity is true. And my God is alive because he's still changing hearts and lives today. He's taking dead people and giving them new life. Yeah, Maybe the best apologetic for the truth of Christianity is a changed life that you preach as a death-defying witness. So we see number one, we see Lazarus, the death-defying witness. And then we see number two, in the room is Martha. Martha's the diligent worker. Notice what it said just very briefly in verse two. It says, so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served. Martha served. Now once again, we're reintroduced to her. She's the workhorse of the family. Her love language was acts of service. And you'll remember, if we go back to Luke chapter 10, when Jesus was at Mary and Martha's home in a previous occasion, 
Martha about worked herself into a frenzy trying to serve Jesus. And in fact, Martha got frustrated at her sister Mary, who was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. And, and Martha thought, Mary ought to be in here helping me wash the dishes. And there she is, just sitting at Jesus' feet. So Martha, if you'll remember that occasion in Luke 10, she tries to sick Jesus on Mary. Hey, can you talk to my sister and get her in gear? <laughs> and what the Lord does in that passage, you remember, He had to correct Martha for her criticizing spirit, thinking that, that what she was doing was more important than what Mary was doing in, in listening to Jesus. And here's what Luke 10, 41 and 42 says. Martha this is Jesus speaking. You are anxious and troubled about many things. We got any Marthas in here? Anxious and troubled about many things. Listen to this. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha was a worker. She know what she needed to do? Jesus was only going to be with her for a short amount of time. She needed to revel in the moment and soak in all of Jesus that she could. Because friend, you can't serve from an empty well. You've got to sit at the feet of Jesus sometimes and let the Word of God and the worship of God flow into your heart so that you have something to give in service later on. Now here in John 12, I think we have a calmer Martha. She's learned a little bit. She's full of joy. It seems to be that she's content now. Now notice something about Martha. Her gift wasn't preaching. Her gift wasn't singing or leading. Her gift was casseroles. <laughs> Her gift was mashed taters and gravy. She spoke the language of apple pie and blueberry yum yum. Somebody say amen in the house of God. And I can just see her in the kitchen with the apron on. She's working hard. She's perspiring. She's moving a, a wisp of hair out of her eyes. And she is a diligent worker. And yet, don't lose sight of this. She's expressing her form of worship to the Lord just as much as Mary and Lazarus. Her worship was through work. And friend, listen to me. I don't care what you're doing today, whether you're flipping burgers or, or digging a ditch or folding the laundry or fixing a flat tire or teaching kids at school or driving a delivery truck, you can allow your work to be worship. Because at the end of the day, you don't offer it at the feet of your boss. You're not working for him necessarily. You're working for the Lord. Yeah. Amen? By the way, if you're not working today, man, it seems like there's plenty of jobs out there and nobody wants to work. Amen? Uh -oh. Amen. Yeah. He who doesn't work doesn't eat, I believe the Bible says. He who doesn't provide for his family, the Bible says, is worse than an infidel. We've got some young people that need to hear this and need to learn it today. You better learn how to work. This world doesn't owe you nothing. Don't depend on the government. to. to they'll, they'll make you a slave, by the way. That's the whole point. They want to get the hook in the jaw and get you addicted to free stuff so they can own you so that you will trade your freedom for free stuff. You get out there and work, young person. You get you a good work ethic. You put sweat on your brow. You put food on the table and be proud of it and say, this is the gift that God has given me. Even if you're a plumber or HVAC guy or just a blue-collar guy, muscular class, or, or whether you're white-collar, it doesn't matter. 
You work hard for the Lord. Because it glorifies Him. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Christ transforms our work into worship. If you go to the Billy Graham Library down in Charlotte, they have a lot of artifacts down there on display that belong to Ruth Graham, who was Billy's faithful wife. And while Billy was out traveling the world preaching the gospel, she stayed home in their little Montreat cabin and she raised the family. And I always chuckled that one of the belongings on display there was a sign that hung above her kitchen sink. And here's what it said. Divine service rendered here three times daily. Now guys, don't tell your wife that. <laughs> that could get you in the doghouse. But look at what she does. She probably didn't like washing dishes or changing diapers or doing any of that stuff that you have to do as a homemaker. But it was a reminder to her that what she was doing was no less significant than what her husband was doing. And our ladies need to hear that too. The world wants to, t to indoctrinate you to the idea that you're less than unless you're out in the world with the guys working and beating yourself uh, at both ends trying to make ends meet. That's a lie from the devil to get us divided in our homes. I get it. Some have to have two incomes to make it ends meet. I get that. But there's honor. There's dignity. There's worth in that. It's God-ordained. It's God-blessed. And don't view that as being less than if that's what God has called you to do. So what about you? Ask yourself, can you serve the Lord with gladness? You may be behind the scenes like, like Martha here. Your ministry may not be in the limelight. You may not be seen by many. But in the kingdom of God, listen to me, invisible doesn't mean insignificant. And in the body of Christ, some of us are the hands. Some of us are the feet. In order to have feet, you've got to have toes. And some of us have been called to be the pinky toe. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because if you stub your pinky toe at the middle of the night, walk through a dark house, it hurts really bad. So we need pinky toes, don't we? And if God's called you to serve in, in an out-of-the-way ministry, do it with gladness. Do it with a full heart of, of service to the Lord. So we see Martha, she was the diligent worker. And we see Lazarus, he was the death-defying witness. And then we see Mary. And this is the real part of the message that I wanted to get to. Mary, she's the devoted worshiper. The devoted worshiper. Now, notice something here about Mary. She appears three times in the Gospels. And every time you see Mary, she's always in the same place. You know where that's at? She's always at the feet of Jesus. You can find another reference in Luke 10 and verse 39 and John 11 and verse 32. But what Mary does here is bring a great gift of worship to the Lord Jesus. And she is showing her gratitude to Jesus for what He did by saving her family, saving her and raising her brother from the dead. What do you give the one who saved your family? The answer to that is the best. You give him the best that you have. Why? Because he's worthy. Let's notice something about Mary the devoted worshiper. I want you to see verse 3. Her worship was sacrificial. 
Her worship was sacrificial. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. I love this, verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What was this perfume? Well, it wasn't Chanel number 5 or it wasn't Burberry. It was called spikenard. The Bible uh, culture describes spikenard as a costly perfume that was produced from a rare plant that grew in northern India. They say that it smelled like rose petals. Amen? And the cost of a jar of this was 300 denarii in Jesus' day. Well, a denarii was the regular wage for a day's work in the first century. So if you translate that today, 300 denarii, that comes out to be equal about $25,000. Probably more in this economy, right? Where everything's way higher. $25,000, this costly ointment, this perfume. In one act, we could say that Mary gave what probably was her life savings and her reputation. Because in this culture, first century Middle East, respectable women never let their hair down except in the presence of their husband. This was a cultural thing. And so think about this. To worship Jesus, Mary was willing to be thought immodest and perhaps even ridiculous. Who showers such a a huge gift on somebody? Well, if you love them, right? Love gives. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And Mary wasn't concerned over what other people thought in that moment, and neither should we. Oftentimes, I think maybe we hold back our praise, our worship. We, we quench the Holy Spirit because we're afraid that we might be labeled. We're afraid of what others might think of us. Oh, that's a holy roller. Oh, there's old so-and-so. They, You know what I'm getting at, don't you? Mary wasn't afraid to give the best and the costly to Jesus. You see... When Jesus is the center of your life, something interesting happens to your priorities. Everything else gets reprioritized. And so that, in the presence of Jesus, which was looked upon as the world as costly and great and very expensive, was just something to shower upon the Savior. You see how Jesus changes our priorities and our value system around? And worship is the response To Christ being the center of everything in our lives. You don't have to wait for Sunday morning to worship. You don't have to wait for Wednesday night or when the preacher is preaching or when the singing is good. You give Him all because He's with you throughout the day. Amen. And what a rebuke. I think this passage is to cheap worship. How many times do we bring cheap worship to the Lord? The offering plate comes by and we just give the leftovers. Give what's second best. We take first and then we give to God what might be hanging on. Worship that doesn't cost us something isn't worthy of Christ. David wouldn't build the temple unless he bought the property first in the Old Testament. 
Hebrews 13, 15 reminds us to bring a sacrifice of praise to God. A sacrifice of praise. You know what that is? That means you worship God when you don't feel like it. You worship God when you've had a hard week and you're coming in on Sunday and you really don't want to be here. You'd rather be at home watching the football game or at the lakeside, but you're here. Why? That's a sacrifice of praise. When your body's hurting so bad, you don't feel like singing, but you're going to offer something to Christ. When you look at your budget and you say, well, I've got to buy heating oil and my kids need shoes and I don't know how I'm going to buy groceries, but I'm going to give first to God and trust Him. That's worship. And somebody asked me who watches the live stream, why do y'all take so much time taking up the, the, the offering and let the kids go through it? Because that's worship. It would be easy to just set it up on an online account where it's automatically deducted from your checking and you never see it. But friend, I don't want to lose the sense of bringing something to the house of God and giving it to Him. And we're also trying to teach our kids that it's worship to give something to Christ. That means worship when you don't feel like it. Worship when life is hard. Worship when you suffer. And when you understand what Jesus has done for us, then no gift is too extravagant. Amen? Worship is the believer's response to a relationship that they don't earn and don't deserve. I don't deserve to be able to kneel at the feet of Jesus. I don't deserve to be able to preach His Word. I am so low. There's no way I should be able to say the name of Jesus. But because He saved me, He redeemed me, He brought me up, I get to worship. I don't understand folk who have a hard time coming to the house of God. And by the way, if you're saved and born again, I shouldn't have to convince you to come to the house of God. You should want to be here. You should want to hear preaching. You couldn't wait to raise your hands in praise to a holy God. You don't have to beg, steal, and borrow to get me to the house of God. I'll be there and I'll, I'll run to the altar because I'm excited about what God has done in my life. We need some preachers who need to hear that too. They need to get some oomph, some unction in their preaching. Because they act like they ain't excited about what God has done. No wonder the church is falling apart. Because if you don't at least let the crowd believe that what you believe is true, how can you get them excited? Amen? What a rebuke this is. Worship is all that I am responding to all that He is. Praising Him for all that He's done and hoping in all that He's going to do. That's worship. Worship is sacrificial. And then look at this. Worship is sensitive to the moment. Verse 4, sensitive to the moment. The Bible says, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who also was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said, or not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Her worship was sensitive to the moment. Remember Mary, she's the one who sat at the feet of Jesus and drank in his teaching. 
And I would wager to you that because she was so hanging on every word of Jesus, she understood His plan and why He was here more than even His disciples did, the men disciples. Why? She was in tune. She grasped more than anybody else. He is who He said He was. He is going to the cross. Time is limited. And if she was going to show Jesus her faith and love, then it had to be now. And what's interesting is when you study the ladies who went to the tomb on resurrection morning, this Mary didn't go. Because they were going that morning to finish the anointing job. They had to bury him quickly. Why didn't she go? Because she'd already done the anointing right here. She saw something that nobody else did. She believed something that nobody else was willing to believe because she was there at the feet of Jesus. She understood Jesus' resurrection and death and she prepared for it and she acted in faith because you don't anoint somebody for burial and death and resurrection unless you believe they can really do it. Jesus had already been preaching that message. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Jews and the Gentiles. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. How did she know it was true? Because she'd seen it happen in her own backyard with her brother Lazarus. And that moved her by faith to give sensitive worship. So you need to understand that there were four classes of people who were anointed in those days. Kings, according to 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 3. Priests, according to Exodus 29-7. Prophets, 1 Kings 19-16. And the dead. Those are the four occasions where people were anointed in the Bible times. And I believe that through Mary's act of worship, she was acknowledging, Jesus, you're all of these things in my life. You're my prophet, you're my priest, you're my king, and you're my savior because you're going to die and rise again. And friend, as I read this passage, what it challenges me to do is to give my best praise now. To give my best offering now. Why? Because my time is limited. And we need to break out our best perfumes for the Lord while we still have a chance. What are you putting off to tomorrow that you ought to be doing today? What are you thinking about giving, thinking about worshiping, thinking about committing to that you put it off and you made excuses and this passage is telling you the time is now. I know the excuses just like Mary did. We've only got this brief window of time with which to offer our best to the Lord. I know all the excuses. Well, preacher... I'll serve when it's more convenient in my life. Preacher, I'll start giving when I've got more money, when my ship comes in, when I get that inheritance, when I get my kids raised. Preacher, I'll give more, I'll do more, I'll commit more when someday never comes, does it? I've heard all the excuses and I've even used some in my own life in the past. But friend, like the old saying goes, we need to do our giving while we're living so we're knowing where it's going. Amen. Don't say I'll give tomorrow. Don't say I'll get committed 
next week or next year or five years from now. Your time is limited. You better give your best praise, your best service, and your best gift to the Lord while you still can. Because the days are coming, friend, when you'll want to serve God, you'll want to be in the house of God, you'll wish you could get up out of your easy chair, but you'll be old and decrepit and you won't be able to go anywhere and serve God. And by then it's too late. Or maybe you're called home in death sooner than you even thought. So the right time is right now. What are we holding back from the Lord? I can't speak to that in your heart. You know what it is. But God's pricking on somebody's heart that I need to give more. I need to do more. As Mary brought her best, I want to bring my best. There's a great film. I wouldn't suggest it for young, younger viewers, but as people get older and they want to have an appreciation for what happened during the Holocaust, there's, a, there's an older movie called Schindler's List. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but after you watch Schindler's List, uh, you're very depressed because it doesn't leave you with a warm, fuzzy feeling. You understand what the Jewish people went through during those terrible years of persecution. But the movie focuses in on one German man, a man named Oscar Schindler. He's played by Liam Neeson. And as he sees the atrocities happening in his nation, his heart changes. He gets sympathy for the Jewish people. And he's a rich German industrialist. He's so wealthy. And he has a factory where they make silverware and pots and pans. Well, the German army comes in and tells me that they are confiscating his factory and they're going to use it for the war effort. Well, at the same time, his heart is changing toward the Jews, and he actually goes to Auschwitz and sees the crematoriums, and he sees the death, and he sees all of the terrible things happening to the Jewish people, and his heart is convicted. And he says, you know what? I've got a factory, and I've got riches. I need to do all that I can to save as many Jews as I possibly can. So he makes a deal with one of the uh, leaders of, of Auschwitz, buy these Jews basically and bring them into his factory and they repurpose the factory to make munitions and ammunition for the German war effort and he figures out a way to sabotage everything so that they'll shoot in blanks. So he goes about this whole uh, endeavor to rescue as many Jews as he can to buy them, to use all of his wealth to bring them into his factory to make these uh, weapons that don't work and then when you get finally to the end of the movie the war's over, Germany has surrendered, and Schindler is meeting with all the workers in his factory, and they're saying goodbye. And he tells them, you can all go free and go in peace. And the most emotional scene in the, in the film comes when Schindler has to say goodbye to his most trusted manager and trusted friend. And as he embraces this man whom he has come to love, he breaks down in tears. And he looks down at his watch and he's wearing a gold watch and he takes it off and he says, I should have given this. It could have saved one more life. He looks at his luxury Rolls Royce vehicle and he says, I should have sold this. It could have saved five or ten more. Why did I keep it? And the point of the film is this. At the end of life, what will we wish we would have given what regrets will we have? And when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and the replay of your life, 
is going through your mind again, you will say, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have given this. I wish I would have sacrificed my best for the Lord because now I see what could have been boxcars of blessings that will never be because I held back. Because I didn't bring what was costly and valuable and set it at the feet of Jesus. And so her worship was sacrificial and it was sensitive. And then lastly, and I'm done with this, her worship was satisfying to the Lord. Oh, I love this. The Bible says in the end of verse 3, listen to this. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In the middle of this beautiful scene, there's a fly in the ointment. It's Judas. He's shaking his head in disapproval, isn't he? And what a stark contrast, my friend. While Mary was giving to the Lord, Judas was stealing from him because the Bible says he was taking money from the ministry bag. While Mary was anointing Jesus with priceless perfume, Judas was planning to sell Jesus for the price of a slave. Mary counted the cost and Judas counted what was lost. By the way, if you decide to devote yourself fully and completely to service and worship of the Lord, there will always be naysayers. There will always be people who will look at you and say, what a waste. What they could have been. I had a family member who told me that. Couldn't understand why I had gone into the ministry. A family member who once told me, Derek, you could have done anything. Could have been a doctor, could have been a lawyer, could have run a business, could have done X, Y, Z. Why did you become a preacher? I said, because God called me. And He looked upon my life and He thought it was a waste. A waste of potential. When you fully devote yourself to living for the Lord, there are people who will look at you and say, what a fanatic, how ridiculous, and they won't get it. You know these people. They're in your family. They're at your workplace. They're your neighbors. They don't understand why you come to the house of God. They don't get the gospel. They don't understand why you give and why you serve because their life hasn't been changed like yours. You see, Judas had everything right on the outside, but on the inside he was rotten and full of dead man's bones. He hadn't been changed by the gospel. and We shouldn't expect the world to love and accept and understand how Christ has changed us. But don't let that discourage you. You have your story. You know what God has done for you. You know how Christ has changed your life. You continue to serve and bring your best to Him. In Mark's account, Jesus gave Mary the ultimate compliment. He dealt with Judas. Verse 9 of Mark 14, listen to what it says. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Somebody would look at Mary and say, what a foolish thing to do with something so costly. I guarantee you Mary got a thousand times back in her spiritual account what she gave to the Lord that day. You say, how so? Well, number one, this story is recorded in Scripture. And for 2,000 years now, how many messages have been preached? How much 
a, a treasure has accrued to the account of Mary because of her one devotion in this scene. How many souls have been impacted? How many people have been saved? How many churches have been built? How many people have been inspired to give because of Mary's example? I guarantee you on the, the day when the crowns are handed out, she will get back way more than she ever gave in this moment. Not only that, but the Bible says that the scent of Mary's sweet perfume filled the whole house. Think about that. Rose petals mingling in the air. My dad tells a story that when he was a young man, 13, 14, 15 years old, he didn't like going to church. We got some teenagers like that probably. They got a drug problem. They get drugged to church every week. Against their will. My daddy said that when his mom was getting ready to go to church on Sunday morning, go to Mount Pisgah Baptist Church, he'd run and hide. He'd go hide behind the barn or, or find somewhere on the family property to make it difficult to be found because he knew mom was going to church and he didn't want to be asked to go. He said that when, when Mama would get ready, She'd spray on her perfume. Shh, 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 shh. And then he'd watch from a distance as the car left and she went up the road to the church. And Dad said he'd go back in the house and the smell of that perfume would be hanging in the air. And he'd be convicted in his heart. You ought to be down there at the house of God. Amen. Oh my goodness. The smell of that sweet rose aroma lingering in the air. Think of this. As, as Mary gets down and she loosens her hair and she begins to wash Jesus' feet. You know what happens? The smell of that perfume then gets mingled in her hair. And now everywhere she goes, she's got the sin of worship on her. So that she's now a bucket that's spilling over into the lives of other people. And you say, why is it important to the house of God to worship? Because when you get filled up and you get touched by the Holy Spirit and God does something in the house that you're excited about, you leave this place with some perfume on you so that when you go out into the world, oh, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. Why are you the way that you are? Why do you think the way that you do? Why do you give the way that you do? It's the perfume of Christ. It's the heart of worship that draws other people in. Friend, I want to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the lost and dying. Out there it's death and destruction. But if I can bring some sweet-smelling aroma of Christ into their lives. You see, when you worship the Lord, you let the contents of your life pour out before the Lord and you become a fragrant blessing. How many of you get blessed in here when you see other people Raising their hands and singing. It's a blessing to come to the house of God. Because sometimes you may come to the house of God and you don't have the strength or the wherewithal in you. Your week has been so hard and you're facing so many difficulties. It's hard for you just to even mutter the words. You come to the house of God and, and God's working on somebody. and God fills somebody up. They start praising and they start singing. And something happens. that Their bucket gets filled up and it starts to overflow. And it comes back to your pew. And all of a sudden, you begin to worship. Even though you didn't feel like coming in. Well, friend, that's the sweet smelling aroma of worship in the house of God. Oh, what a blessing. I'm telling one on Daniel. This is so funny. 
You ever tried to carry a bucket of, of water that's full? Daniel likes to get out in the garden with me and work. The other day, he got out. We were watering, doing some water, and he, he got out there with me, and he got a bucket. And I said, Daniel, fill that up with water and go over there and water those, those flowers. Daniel went over the spigot, and he filled that, that water bucket up, up to overflowing. And he bent down to pick that thing up. Oh, it was so heavy. And he strove and he got it up. And he's walking. And as he's walking, the water is sloshing out. I think maybe half of the bucket got to where it needed to be. But friend, what a picture. When you come to the house of God and you get your bucket full. And God fills you up and he pours down on you blessing after blessing. And you walk out in the world. Oh, it's, in, it's inevitable. It's going to splash out. It's going to affect the people you work with. It's going to touch the people that's in your house or in your neighborhood. And it's going to make a difference where you go. That's why it's important to come to the house of God. and To be blessed so that you can be a blessing. So that you can be satisfying. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, True spiritual worship involves attention to three books. God's book, the pocket book, and the hymn book. And when your heart is full of God's book, it spills out into other areas. And when we are living in the overflow, there is preaching, giving, and praise. Final application is this. Examine yourself in this scene. Where are you sitting at God's table? Each one is unique. Each one is necessary. We need witnesses. We need workers. We need worshipers. They all play a different role in God's house. The one who worships needs the one who proclaims. The one who serves needs the one who worships. Vice versa. There's also a warning here. Inside every church, there's Mary's, and there's Judas's. Amen? There are people who are there for the right reason. and Who know the Lord in a personal way. And there's others who are there only on pretense. There's true believers and there's make-believers. There's sheep and goats. There's wheat and tares. There's professors and possessors. And if you're a Mary, be encouraged. If you're a Judas, you better get down here and repent. Because God sees your selfish heart and He offers you a chance to repent before it is too late. Think about this. Mary goes from this occasion different. The Bible says that the smell of that hung in the air. That perfume. Think about this. Every time Mary went out to do her chores... Maybe she's walking through the marketplace and she catches a whiff of that sweet perfume at the marketplace or at a viewing for a burial. Every time she smells those sweet rose petals, where's she going to go back to? She's going to go right back to the feet of Jesus. Just like you can smell certain things and it'll take you back to your mama's kitchen. Oh, you, you smell biscuits or you, you smell a certain dish that your mama fixed and it takes you right back to the good old days. Mary left that place and every time that she smelled that scent of spikenard, take her right back to that memory of being at the feet of Jesus. And friend, here's why worship is important. Because we are building a museum of memories in this house right here. 
And you're going to come to a point in your life when you're going to need to go into that museum of memories and pull something off the shelf and take you back to the sweet time you were in the house of God. When the preaching was so real. When the music touched your heart. When it seemed like the hours went by and you lost all track of time. And it will take you right back to the sweetest moments at the feet of Jesus. So give Him your best. Don't hold anything back. Create that monument of of memories in your mind. Because one day, you're going to need to go back to it. Amen.